We are in the book of Jude. Uh, a big fan of expository preaching going verse by verse through a book. So if you're not used to that, maybe you're in for quite the treat, I would think, tonight. Um, I'll get you caught up to speed because I know some of you guys are new. Some of you guys have short-term memories. We are going through Jude. I'm starting in verse 11 tonight. So you've already missed the first 10 verses. Okay, This is like walking into a movie uh, an hour and a half late. So this is kind of what you need to know. There's a guy named Jude. He's writing a story. Big surprise there, I know. He's the, he's the half-brother of Jesus, okay? They got the same mom, different dad. He's Jesus' half-brother. He's writing this story sometime between 68 and 70 AD. Like his siblings, Jude. Jude did not become a believer in his brother Jesus, the Christ, until after the resurrection. He, he didn't think he was who he said he was until after he rose from the dead. And of the 25 verses in Jude, 19 of them can be traced back and found in a parallel form in 2 Peter, where Peter uses future tense language to describe the impending threat of the false teachers, the spiritual pretenders. Jude uses present tense, which leads many to the conclusion, at least in so much as Jude functions, that he operates his letter as a sequel to 2 Peter. So he writes this letter to Christians. I imagine some of you might not be Christians in here today. That's okay. I'm glad that you're here. But he's writing this letter to Christians, to believers, to those who are slaves of Christ. I.e. their identity is in, in Christ, not anything else, not what the world says. They are called. They are beloved. They are kept for Christ. And he's writing them to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. He is calling them. He is beating the battle drums. He is, wants them to be aware of the situation. And the situation is this. There are spiritual pretenders who have crept into the church unnoticed. And they are bad news. They are dangerous. And he is trying to make these believers aware of the situation. The situation of these people. And so, that was essentially more or less the last five weeks. Now to verse 11. He starts in verse 11 and he says this. Woe to them. Woe to them. The, the word translated woe, it's an interjection. It's an emotional cry that is essentially exclaiming something along the lines of, wow, how horrible this is going to be for them. He turns up the energy level just a little and he says, Woe to them! He is expressing the sad reality of these individuals who are under divine judgment. And it is a sad reality. They're under divine judgment, these spiritual pretenders, just as the spiritual pretenders of our day are under divine judgment, just as all those who reject the authority of God are under divine judgment. Um, but sad. Woe implies that there are negative consequences coming for those for whom it is applied to. It can almost be another word for judgment. He says, woe to them, because the reality is these individuals are under God's divine judgment. They will experience a real place of suffering for all of eternity known as hell. And so he says, woe to them. 
It's a sad expression or this, this reality that awaits them. Woe to them. And then he's going to give three comparisons. He's going to liken the spiritual pretenders to three different biblical stories, three different individuals, none of which you would want to be compared to. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain. They walked in the way of Cain. The story of Cain and Abel can be found in Genesis, the fourth chapter. It's there where Cain and Abel bring a sacrifice to the Lord. God rejects Cain's sacrifice and accepts Abel's. He's upset about it, long story short, and kills his brother. You see, what you need to understand, though, is that Cain had previously been told by God what constituted a proper sacrifice. Cain knew that God required a blood sacrifice. But instead of obeying, instead of doing what God required, he just does his own thing. He just makes it up his own way, his own form of worship. He rejects God's instruction. He operates by his own self-styled instinct and pride. Cain was religious, but disobedient, much like the spiritual pretenders who, like Cain, reject the authority of God. We know that from verse 4 and verse 8. They reject the authority of God. They know what's expected, and they say, nope, I'm going to do it my own way, God. That's them. That's Cain. They're religious like Cain, but, but they're a joke. They affirm true theological beliefs, but they're a joke. And I want to pause there, because I know some of you are here tonight for the first time. These spiritual pretenders who deny our only Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, according to verse 4, it's not that they don't believe theologically sound things. Okay, It's not that they're like, yep, I don't believe Jesus is Lord. Well, you can see that person a mile away. Okay, that's not the people he's talking about. They've crept in unnoticed. It's that they affirm true things theologically. They deny God. They reject his authority in a practical way. Titus 1.16, best passage I can find to illustrate it. Titus 1.16, Paul says, they profess to know God, but they deny God by their actions. Right? They say, yeah, yeah, I'm a Christian, but I'm also sleeping with a girl I'm not married to. So they, they affirm true theological uh, beliefs, but then they deny God in a very practical way. That's them. And they have no conviction about it. It's not they're like, oh, yeah, I know I shouldn't be doing it. They're just like, oh, this is okay. And they justify it however they decide to justify it. Woe to them. They walk in the way of Cain. Second thing. They abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error. Woe to them, for they abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error. You can read about the story. The man named Balaam in the book of Numbers, chapter 22 to 24. John Miller and I, we read that together the other day. He stopped by my house and I was like, let's, let's read this together. He didn't have much of a choice because I said, I'm going to read this. I'm going to read it out loud. So, <laughs> Hey, he came over. Had a good time. The story of Balaam is essentially like this. 
Midian and Moab are nervous. They're nervous because there is a potential Israelite aggression in the area, in the Transjordan area, uh, the Palestine area. You see, this new people have just emerged from Egypt. They are incredibly numerous. And Midian and Moab are scared. So there's a guy named Balaam. And apparently he's really legit because whatever he says happens. So the leaders, the princes of Midian and Moab, they call for Balaam to come. They say, we're going to pay you money. Come, we want you to pronounce curses on the Israelites because they're incredibly numerous and there's no way we could take them right now. So Balaam gets on his donkey and he is going to see them. And while he's on his donkey, unbeknownst to him, an angel of the Lord appears in front of him. He doesn't know it. The donkey does. And so the donkey kind of veers off. What's wrong with the donkey? So he just starts beating the donkey. Come on. We start again. And once again, the donkey sees the angel of the Lord, sword drawn, ready to hack Balaam into a bunch of pieces. And the donkey veers off. And so he starts beating the donkey again. Finally, he gets the donkey a third time and is trying to continue his journey. And there's a point in which the scriptures say he can't turn left or right, so the donkey just lays down. And he starts beating the donkey. If this was 2015, it would probably be, according to some animal rights groups, the most terrible thing because both the lion got killed and the Balaam's donkey got beat. Probably the most, two most egregious things of 2015 to some people, I imagine. That being said, the crazy thing is, at that point in the story, God opens the donkey's mouth and he speaks to the donkey. Excuse me, the donkey speaks to Balaam. And I'm sure after some mild cardiac arrhythmia that Balaam <laughs> experienced when his donkey's speaking to him, is that a... Is that, a, is that a thing? It's a thing. <laughs> That's why we have med students here. Donkey speaks to him. Can imagine, only imagine his reaction. Um, donkey says, Balaam, you've known me for a long time. Come on, I I've served you for a while. Have you ever known me to act like this? Balaam says, well, that is a good point. This is rather strange behavior. <laughs> <laughs> Even have a donkey. He says, Balaam, listen, I, I was trying to protect you, okay? There's the angel of the Lord standing up there with a sword drawn, ready to hack you into pieces. And at that moment, the Lord opens Balaam's eyes, and he falls down. He's panicked. He realizes, uh-oh, I'm in trouble. Fast forward the story. He gets to where he's going with the leaders of Midian and Moab. They take him up to a high area, overlooks into the desert. He sees in the distance the encampments of the Israelites. They are incredibly numerous. And then he goes, and instead of curses coming out of his mouth, it's just blessings. Well, you can imagine that Midian and Moabite leaders aren't very happy because they paid him to speak curses. And so they say, stop that. So they take him to another point, and they try it again. You can read this in Numbers 22, 24. Same thing happens, not only two, but also three times. He goes to open his mouth, just curses that come out of his mouth. You see, here's the thing with Balaam. Luanida captures this really going back to what Jude is saying, Jude uses him as an example. See, he says, they gave themselves completely to the kind of deception that Balaam practiced for the sake of money. These opponents, these spiritual pretenders, they taught error in order to make a buck. 
and they were deceived enough to believe the very error that they taught. And most likely their error had some type of, or at least the idea of, sexual license around it. And we know that because back in verse 8, they defile the flesh. Back in verse 4, they pervert the grace of our God into sensuality. I imagine whatever they were teaching to make a buck, it probably had the lie, something to do with the sexual license. I.e., oh, that's okay. You guys, yeah, as long as you guys love each other, go ahead. You know, have at it. Do a bunch of married stuff. Which you, you hear dumb advice like this all the time, right? Two people claim to be Christians and coming and having sex, but they're not married. And uh, then I guess the thing is justifying it. Because there's a big difference because people come, and I have these conversations a lot, between the person who's repentant and knows what they're doing is wrong versus the person who just folds their arm, and I've had that with those guys before, and just justifies it, right? Like, well, you know, we're like married in our hearts. No, you're not. Um, but we love each other. No, you don't. You're just using her. She's using you. Whatever. And so whatever it was, it most likely had elements of a sexual license that these spiritual pretenders were teaching. They were, for a buck, trying to get people to buy into these erroneous ideas. And, and I, I want to talk about this for a second because there are spiritual pretenders even today. They are. And I think it's really important, especially for us to be on our guard, so not only that we don't abandon ourselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's heir, but that we're also mindful enough, discerning enough to be able to recognize these things. And I say that because some of us, and I say this, let me tell you, I love Lifeway Christian Bookstore. It's a really cool store. But some of us think just because everything's on the shelf in there means it's Christian. There are demonic things in that store. That might be a newsflash for some of you. Just because it's in Lifeway doesn't mean it's Christian. Okay, and we can talk about that small group. I encourage you, you know, we'll have, maybe have some good small group discussions further off of this. Um, this isn't me making up. I, I heard David Platt talk about this. He came and sp- President of the International Mission Board came and spoke uh, a couple weeks ago at Liberty. Okay, that, my point is we need to be discerning and careful. Just because someone is a quote-unquote pastor, um, that we're careful we're careful if we make a recommendation. We're careful and discerning if we read something. That just because it's at the Liberty uh, bookstore doesn't mean it's actually Christian. Doesn't mean it's legit. Just hope you know that. Um, a well-known book, for example, by a pastor of the largest church in America. It's, it's called Live Your Best Life Now. What's the name of the book? It's an ironic title because when you think about it, living your best life now, the only way that's actually possible is if you're going to hell. Something to think about. Woe to them, Jude says. Woe to them. Because for a buck, they were willing to prostitute themselves out to teach things that were not legit, that were lies, that were erroneous. Not only that, but they bought into their very own lies they taught, so woe to them. The third story he tells us is of the story of Korah and the rebellion that took place. And perished in Korah's rebellion. You can read the story in Numbers chapter 16. Great story. I read it today again. Essentially, this is what happened. Korah is a little upset. He's mad at Aaron and Moses. There's definitely some elements of pride. He's mad because he didn't get selected to be one of the leaders. He wanted to be one of the priests. He didn't get picked. 
He's mad. He's upset. Doesn't get to have it its own way. So what does he do? Well, he gets a whole bunch of people to get mad with him. Let's get mad at Aaron and Moses. Yeah, that's what they do. But it doesn't end well. God's not happy. Because Moses and Aaron were there because God had placed them in that leadership position. They weren't usurping power. They were there because those are God's men for that time. Corey doesn't like it. Tries to get a lot of people to go along with them and grumble and be mad about it too. So God causes an earthquake. But right before he does that, Moses goes in and says, listen, here's the thing. If I'm not legit, if Aaron and me aren't legit, this is what's... If if Aaron and me are legit, excuse me, we're legit, this is what's going to happen in a a moment. The earth is actually going to open up and it's going to swallow up those people who are talking crap about us. If if we truly are legit, if not, nothing's going to happen, okay? As soon as he's done speaking, boom, earth opens up, swallows up Korah and their families and the other people who have gone along with them. Boom. Terminates them. A few days later, you read, some of the people were actually feeling sympathetic. I mean, this event just happened, right? You just saw Moses come out and say this, and you just saw the earth open up and swallow up this guy Korah and some of the other people. And then a few days later, the people of Israel start grumbling. They're like, maybe Korah was right. Yeah, that Moses guy, Aaron guy. God is furious, sends a plague, kills 14,700 of them, would have killed more. But Moses goes, please, God, please don't kill any more of them. And so he stops. You see, when Jude says and mentions them here, this is what Jude is pointing out. Here's, here's the point of this. Korah's failure in Jude's eyes was a verbal challenge to the authority and status of Moses and Aaron. That's, that's the issue. In Jude's eyes, Korah's failure was a verbal challenge to the authority and status of Moses and Aaron. The spiritual pretenders are challenging God's authority. We know that from verse 4. We know that from verse 8. They have their own intermingled version of Christianity where they borrow certain aspects and then the parts of Christianity that don't fit within their own lifestyles, they just ignore and justify their actions, right? So when you come and you say, hey, the Bible says this, they say, oh, no, 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 no. No, no, God, no, the, the scriptures aren't right there. No, 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 that part's not that accurate. That's not what it means. That's just an Old Testament passage. That's out of context. That's not KJV, whatever it is. Sure, they've got some great excuse. Some of the excuses are they're saying they've actually, God's revealed to them in their dreams certain truths and certain things. So they can say, oh, no, 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 it is okay that we're having sex. No, no, it's okay that I'm looking at porn because, after all, it's not really harming anyone. Whatever it is, I can only imagine. It wasn't all that different than some of the stupid, moronic things people come up with today. Woe to them. That's the sad reality. And then he says this, verse 12. These are hidden reefs at your love feast. These are hidden reefs at your love feast. Anybody ever been snorkeling before? A couple snorkeler fans? My wife's a big fan of water, fish, open spaces. The larger the fish, the better. Some of you understand that because you know Diana. She doesn't like fish at all. I always tell her, fish are friends. Fish are friends. (laughs) So he likens, this is what Jude does. Jude likens the spiritual pretenders to hidden reefs. Hidden reefs. Shallow water, maybe near the shore, boats going by, 
who can wreak havoc on a boat, on a ship, just rip open the hull like it was paper mache. That's the imagery that he's trying to convey. That is what they're like, incredibly dangerous, hidden, hidden. Remember, they've crept in unnoticed, verse 4. He says, they're like hidden reefs at your love feast. The, the spiritual pretenders he likened to these hidden reefs, like they're under the surface. They're not under the surface of the water. They're under the surface at the love feast of the early church from where they can tear into unsuspecting people with their lies. One of the reasons that Jude calls the believers to be willing to contend for the faith, that was a couple weeks ago back in verse 3, the reason he wants believers to be willing to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints is because these spiritual pretenders are dangerous. This isn't a matter of, I believe in speaking in tongues, I don't. That's not what this is. This isn't like a, a just a, a run-of-the-mill theological disagreement. That's not what this is. It is so much more serious and so much more dangerous because they're actually justifying certain sins. They're creating a license to kind of live however they want. They borrow the parts of Christianity they like. They ignore the parts that don't fit within their own lifestyle so they don't have to repent. So that they can keep going and living however they want. They can say, like one of my friends said, listen, I obey God 51 weeks out of the year. We're here on spring break. So this is the week that I'm taking it off. One of our other dumb things people say and come up with. That's them. They're like hidden reefs at the love feast. Say, what are love feasts? Love feasts are really cool. Really, really cool. Love feasts were essentially meals that the church would have together. They eat food together. It would be times of Christian unity. And it would be times where you could share food, share conversations, get to know people, care for people, serve people, love people. And oftentimes it would end, the end of the love feast would end with taking communion, taking the Lord's Supper. That's what the love feast were. Some people say, Joe, why do you guys have service at 5 p.m.? Actually, true story, one of the reasons that we always have, that we want to have services, one of the reasons why we have service at 5 p.m. is so, it's right around dinner time. So every Sunday night, we can get together and we can have love feast. We can do this. There are times of Christian unity Times where we can know people, care for people, serve people, and love people. And you hear me say all the time that the lifeblood of the church is small groups. And the reason I say that is because small groups I would very much liken to love feast. Small groups are love feast-like activities that we do. When we get together and we meet during the week, whether it's uh, the lust-free living groups for guys, whether it's girls' small group, whether it's co-ed on Tuesdays, co-ed on Thursdays, Wednesday night living respects, those are love feast-like activities of Christian unity and times where we can care, serve, know, and love one another. But I realized that as I was preparing this sermon, I kind of had a, a hard thing because I'm thinking, Jude says this for a reason. If love feasts weren't important, he wouldn't have mentioned it. He wouldn't be concerned that the spiritual pretenders are like hidden reefs at the love feast. Love feasts are important, and yet for our modern, day, our modern day audience, we have such a hard time wrapping our minds around this. Because we don't think they're important. This is what I mean. I'll, I'll illustrate this like this. Someone come to, come to me the other day. They said, Joe, I'm, it's really exciting about Lynchburg City Church. So what do you mean? And they said, well, back in April and May, you guys were averaging like, 70 people on a given Sunday night? I said, oh, oh yeah. 
yeah, attendance has definitely gone up. He's like, yeah. He's like, you know, most church plants don't break 100 people in attendance till year four, and you guys did it in year two. That's, that's really cool. You guys are averaging like 26 more people on any given Sunday night. And I said, oh, yeah, 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 that's, that's true. That's, that's cool. He says, you don't seem very excited about that. I said, well, I said, remember, a church can be a mile wide but only an inch deep. There's lots of churches that people think they're successful because they have lots of people. They think they're a healthy church because they have lots of people. It's just a common misconception. That's how we measure it, right? A lot of people come. It's a good church. The bigger, the better, obviously. Um, the bigger, the healthier. That's not the case. And he said, well, why aren't you that excited? I said, I'm not that excited because even though we're averaging 26 more people on any given Sunday night, not only has the attendance for small groups, like the Love Feast-like activities, not only has it not, not, only has it not stayed the same, it's actually declined. I'm going to choose my words really carefully next. Jude mentions these love feasts, and they're important. I think so are love feast-like activities that we do. Small groups are the lifeblood of the church. But the problem is, is many of you, for you, coming Sunday nights, well, that's good enough. Or whatever it is. Wherever you decide to church hop any given week. That's good enough. You know, I've done my thing. Done my due diligence. I'm good to go now. And not only does this not make sense to you. Not only do you fail to see the importance. Some of you don't, don't really care. Now I know I'm not talking to everybody in here. Okay. But for the 60% of you that fall into this category. I am talking to you. The 60% of you that you come Sunday. And that's it. And I got it. You say, aren't there, aren't there reasons, Joe? I mean, there's, there's exceptions. Yeah, there are exceptions. I know there's a couple guys here at the church. They've got full-time jobs, and they're scheduled to work till 10 p.m. every single night, and there's really no way, or other people that got a class at that time. Like, I understand. One thing I've learned in the Army is blessed are the flexible. I got it. I'm not hard for the sake of being hard. I understand. But for many of you, you say, oh, aren't I the exception? No, not really. Probably not. See, no, no, Joe, you don't understand. I'm really, really busy. I got a lot going on. And it's always interesting when people tell me that. Because the implication when you say, hey, I'm really busy. That's why I can't go to a love feast-like activity like a small group because I'm busy. And the implication is, is, well, if I'm not busy, then I can come. Okay? I can't come because I'm too busy. I'll one say this. If someone ever told you that Christianity was about mere convenience, I'm really sorry. They probably should not have told you that being a Christian was not about your convenience. The second thing is, the whole statement, I'm really busy, doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And this is the reason why. Because it's saying that I'm really busy right now because I've got college going on. But later on, maybe I can come because I'll have more time. But if you think about the logical progression of that statement, it doesn't make any sense. Because after college... Well, I'll have a job, which you would think I'd be even more busy. And after college, I'll have a husband or wife, which would be more busy than the first premise. And after college, I'll have a full-time job and a wife and kids. So the idea is that you don't get any less busy. I hate that excuse. Some excuses, they're fine. Others, it's just ridiculous. Um... It's ridiculous because they say, listen, I'm busy, Joe. I got it. You know, I, I want to do this, but I'm just, I'm so busy. And I'm thinking, yeah, but you had two and three hours you spent with that girl or that boy today. 
You were on Netflix for two or three hours. You were on Hulu Plus. You, you were on Xbox One, PS4. You were on Facebook. You were on Twitter. But I got it. You're too busy. I know a lot of you love Jesus. Okay? I'm not saying you're a spiritual pretender. But what I am saying is that you have some commonalities with the spiritual pretenders that really need to be cut out of your life. I'll tell you, one of my biggest regrets, guys, and I say this, guys, I went to Liberty, I came there as a freshman 10 years ago, I had such a terrible attitude. I, I, this was me, and if this is you, don't be like me. But I was like, well, I go to Convo three days a week, and I go to prayer groups, that's four times a week, I'm good. I, I've done my due diligence. I never committed to a local church. I never got involved. I blew it off. I didn't see the importance. I justified it. Because during that time, I just thought about myself. Guys, don't be like me. I got it. Some of you really love God, but you need to hear this because you're more like these spiritual pretenders than maybe you realized about 10 minutes ago. They are hidden reefs at your love feast as they feast with with you without fear. They're at the love feast. They have no fear of God. They have no fear of the consequences from what they're doing, the sins in their life that they're justifying. They're not coming to him reverently. They're coming to him irreverently. They have no fear. And oh, by the way, he says they are shepherds feeding themselves. Now, it doesn't take a biblical theologian to know a thing or two about shepherds. Pretty sure I can prove that point here. Shepherds, what are they supposed to be concerned about? Anybody? Or the flock. I would have accepted either one. So if you're going to say flock, talk to me afterwards and get you credit, full credit for that. <laughs> Sheep, flocks, that's what they're concerned about. Okay? The problem is, is too many of us, we're like them. See, they're not concerned about the people of God. They're not concerned about the flock of God. They're concerned about themselves. See, shepherds, weird thing for Jude to be saying about them. Almost seems like a compliment, really a backhanded compliment. Shepherds are supposed to be concerned with the flock, with the sheep. They're not. They're there, and they're just concerned about feeding themselves. And the issue that so many of us, a lot of us young people, right, in this demographic between 18 and 35, we have this consumeristic self-entitlement version of Christianity which says, I'm here to come and take and that's all I want, right? As soon as service is over, boom, I'm gone. I'm not worried about the person to my left or right. I'm not worried about the person that I got to know during intermission. It's just me, right? That is our mindset and so many of us are just like them and I'm standing up here pleading with you, don't be like these shepherds feeding themselves. We are a family here at Lynchburg City Church. We look out for each other. We love one another. We care for one another. We serve one another. And yet we just, we just are like shepherds. And we're not concerned about the people of God. Like some of you came here tonight, you're thinking, man, I hope this gets over like by 6.30 because I got stuff to do. That's what our culture says too. Don't be like them. Love feast and love feast like activities. I say small groups are lifeblood of the church. It's about mutual edification. And so many of you, you guys miss out on those opportunities to use your spiritual gifts, to exercise your spiritual muscles, to bless other people, and to also receive blessings from other people. You miss, you miss out on that. And I'm not up here to say hard things for the sake of being hard. But the fact is... Is my job, according to Colossians 1.28, is to present you mature in Christ. I don't want wimpy Christians. 
Too many churches have wimpy Christians. I'm seeing a problem. Jude's talking about it. So I'm going to push back. I don't care if I make you feel uncomfortable. I do not care if you feel uncomfortable right now. What I care about is that you're actually challenged. That you're actually thinking, hmm, maybe this is an area in my life where I have too much in common with the bad guys in this story than I should have. And for some of you right now, you just need to start praying and asking God to grant you a heart of repentance. Because you're so wrong and this part of your life so messed up in this consumeristic version of church that you have created or come to the realization that's not reality. Church is about mutual edification. It's about other people. It's about the people to your left, to your right, that are in front of you, that are behind you. Like that's why we do small groups at church. That's why we do love feast like activities at church. We don't really do them a whole lot anymore, but I'm telling you, if they were not important, if this was not important, Jude wouldn't have talked about it. He wouldn't have been concerned that they were hidden reefs at the love feast. If love feasts weren't really big, if they weren't big deals. If a love feast wasn't a big deal, Jude wouldn't be concerned. He'd be like, oh yeah, they're at the love feast, but that's not really the issue. That's not a big deal. No, it is a big deal. That's why Jude is talking and mentions these love feasts. And he says that these individuals, they're like waterless clouds swept along by the winds. You see, in ancient Palestine, very dry climate, very warm. Very dry, very warm. You need rain at certain critical moments. You don't get rain, you're in big trouble. You see clouds in the distance. Good news, rain's coming. The wind brings them, and you expect rain. And then they pass right over. No rain. No rain. Proverbs 25, 14 says it like this. Like clouds and wind without rain is a man who boasts of a gift he does not give. The spiritual pretenders, they promise a whole lot. They deliver absolutely zero. They write checks they can't cash. Some of you might be waterless clouds brought about by rain. The the guy who makes the promise to the girl... Again and again. Oh, we're, you know, this isn't going to happen, right? This isn't going to happen, right? We, we, I know we messed up here, but it's not going to happen again, right? That won't happen. And makes these promises after promise. That's the last time I'm going to look at that stuff on the internet. It's not going to happen again. And yet they don't want to repent. They don't want to talk to anybody about it. They just, like a waterless cloud, they, they keep saying the same thing. They make promises. They don't deliver on anything. They're a joke. They're a freaking joke. And then he goes on and says, oh, by the way, they're fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead uprooted. The reason they're twice dead is because not only are they, they have no fruit on the trees, which they should because it's, it's autumn, it's harvest time. Um, but because they have no fruit, they uproot them, they're dead. He equates the spiritual pretenders to two things of nature at the end in verse 13. He says this, verse 13 They're like wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars. A storm comes, the, the water comes, it brings a bunch of debris, scatters at the storm, and, and it scatters debris all along the shore. There's nothing life-giving, there's nothing beneficial, there's nothing helpful. It's just foam, it's just debris, it's just their own shame. He says they're like wandering stars, we're literally like wandering planets. You can't navigate because they're constantly moving. You can't shoot like an azimuth, you can't get grid coordinates because, because they're not helpful in navigation. You can't chart anything off of them. They'll just mislead you. They're not reliable. Woe to them. 
Because for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. A real place of suffering called hell is what they will experience. It begins and closes with that idea. I got it. Some of you in here today, I'm sure some of you guys legitimately love the Lord. But some of you guys are just, you're, you're more like the spiritual pretenders than you need to be. And you just need to stop and repent in these areas of your life. Whether you're walking in the way of Cain and you just make it up as you go, you reject what you know is true. Whether you're a, whether you're a, a, a shepherd who is only concerned not about the flock, not about the people of God, but you're just concerned about feeding yourself, or you're like a waterless cloud, you make promises all the time, you deliver on nothing. Real things to think about. Some of you... you you have really terrible discernment. And when there's Balaam-like people in, in your life, I mean, you're just, oh, yes, awesome, the next Christian book, the next Christian movie, because it's that life way. I'm just so excited. And you really lack areas of discernment. I, I don't know which category you're in or that maybe it's just really popping out off the pages of this text to you right now, but I hope you don't ignore it. Lord, we love you. And I pray that you would grant some of us in here tonight a heart of repentance. Some of us in here tonight, I fear, are more like these spiritual pretenders than we have any business being like such. And I pray that you would grant us a heart of repentance. We might be like Cain. We might be religious, yet disobedient. We just kind of, we obey and follow the rules we like and ignore the other ones that don't really fit within our lifestyle. I pray that you would grant us a heart of repentance. I pray, Lord, that you would give us a true heart of worship. You would bring us back to this notion that if we love you, we will keep your commandments. That we would be broken over some of the, the things and applications we heard tonight from Jude. And some of the things I'm asking are, quite frankly, impossible. So I will pray as your servant, Saint Augustine, prayed so long ago. Lord, command what you will and give what you command. Enable us to do the things that we really need to do, that we really need to take care of, that we really need to stop ignoring in our lives. We need you, Jesus. Amen.